Five years ago, the Albuquerque Journal ran an obituary for a man by the name of Walter White. Uh, this might not seem unusual, it wouldn't to me, except that uh, I found out that this Walter White was actually a fictional character from a television show. Uh, I've never watched it, so I, I can't even tell you what the name of it was. Uh, but perhaps even more unusual than the fact that uh, a paper would run an obituary for a fictional person is that he's not the first one. And in fact, that distinction belongs to uh, Monsieur Hercule Poirot, the Belgian detective created by Agatha Christie. Uh, he died in 1975, and his obituary ran on the front page of the New York Times. Miss Christie actually had hoped to do away with Monsieur Poirot, uh, whom she had come to loathe back in the 1940s, but he was so popular uh, that she sat on the story that she had written in which he died for over 30 years. Poirot uh, was obviously patterned after Sherlock Holmes, and Christie came to find both of them uh, rather pompous and egocentric, she said. Uh, her later fiction tends to prefer Miss Marple. Christie's fiction developed from the earlier days in which she imitated Arthur Conan Doyle, and uh, she came to dislike the more clinical, empiricist approach of the professional detectives. And she began to introduce more suspense into her works as they became more, uh, what shall we say, amateur. And she did this by laying out the facts of the case. If you've ever read uh, an Agatha Christie novel, you know how it works. In each chapter, she tries to frame one of the characters using the same facts that we have from the other chapters. And uh, each chapter you think, oh, it must be this other character who did it. And what I find fascinating about these novels, and I'm, I'm a great fan of detective literature, is how the same facts can be made to support rival interpretations. And then you need Miss Marple or Poirot or whoever it is to explain how one interpretation is better than the others. And so I was sharing with a brother in class this past week uh, the fact that scholars of the Bible are split just about 50-50 between those who believe, for example, that St. Paul uh, journeyed to the region known as Galatia in what is today northern Turkey, and those who believe that he did not go there, and so that his letter to the Galatians is named naming an ethnic group of Celts uh, that had groups in southern Turkey, where he definitely visited. And again, the interesting thing is I, I tend to favor the second group myself, but both sides have really good arguments, and they both appeal to the same facts. So you know, we'll find out in heaven whether Paul went there or not. Now, human beings have always been faced with this dilemma. We have these puzzling circumstances to sort out. We can't know the meaning of everything that happens in our life right away. Things happen that don't make sense. We beg for an explanation. What is perhaps new in our case is that we tend to rely today more on empirical science more than the ancients did. And again, as Agatha Christie discovered, this doesn't necessarily make for a better explanation might establish certain other facts, but to get meaning out of it is a different kind of thing. And in the ancient world, it was the job of the prophet to make sense of puzzling facts and ambiguous circumstances.
What we have in the books such as Isaiah and Jeremiah are interpretations, and particularly interpretations of events that were quite troubling. For example, when the people of Israel went into exile, what did this mean? How do we interpret this? This happened. It was quite traumatic. Uh, The city of Jerusalem was burned. The temple was destroyed. Does this mean, for example, one explanation would be this. God is less powerful than the gods of Babylon. Some people might believe that. What about this one? God has forsaken his people and voided his covenant. Another possible interpretation. Now, as it happens, Jeremiah and others said no to both of these interpretations, but now they have to come up with a rival interpretation. What is it? Instead, he and the other prophets developed a theology of chastisement, of repentance, of purification, and later a theology of ingathering and a second exodus, a new exodus that God would accomplish in reestablishing his people in the Holy Land. And then something extraordinary happened. The prophets went silent. For about 500 years, the people of Israel lacked recognizable prophecy, and they even talk about this in the book of Maccabees, for example, after the defilement of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek Uh, Lord. They took away the defiled stones and they put them aside and said, uh, we'll wait until a prophet arises, because there are no prophets. We don't know what to do with these stones. We don't know how to make sense of what happened to the temple here. So for the time being, we'll just rebuild it and go on and wait until a prophet arises. There's very little written record of what happens in Judea uh, between the, the five centuries that lead up to the birth of John the Baptist. Nor is it a surprise, then, that when John does appear, he caused quite a stir. It's interesting to note that the written contemporary records of his lifetime uh, document John much more than they document Jesus. Uh, He made a big impression on people. He was unanimously taken by the people to be an authentic prophet, the first one in centuries. This was a big deal. His appearance presaged some new great era in God's dealing with his people and with the world. Now, unlike some of the earlier prophets, John didn't have a lot to say about international events, which were quite interesting, to say the least, at the time. But his strong emphasis on purification picks up where Jeremiah and especially Ezekiel left off. His first work was to dispose the hearts of the people so that they will pay attention to what God was intending to do, so to prepare people to learn how to notice certain things about the world. But again, like the other prophets, John had the job of interpreting otherwise neutral facts. And perhaps the most important interpretation he gave was this one. When the young Jesus of Nazareth appeared while John was baptizing, John pointed to this unassuming carpenter from a no-account village in the sticks, and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This means that there is going to be a new Passover, and that this man will be the new Passover Lamb, and that when Jesus is crucified, those who heard John's preaching could look at this event and understand it, and understand this is not just the 
another example of the brutal grinding of Roman justice, this is the, the unique sacrifice that will reconcile the world to God, that will bring in the new Passover, that will end the exile that has been going on for 500 years, that will bring about the ingathering of all the Gentiles and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all the world. This is where St. Peter on Pentecost quotes the prophet Joel, that God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh, and all will prophesy. And that means me and you, all those who have received the Holy Spirit in baptism and in confirmation. We can look to John the Baptist to know what it is we're supposed to be doing. And what does he do? He points to Christ in our midst. So this is our challenge. Can we dispose ourselves through docility to the Holy Spirit, through our participation in the sacraments, to go out in the world and point to Christ, to explain to people what God is doing, to be prophets. And so on this feast of St. John the Baptist, let us ask that his intercession and the gifts of the Holy Spirit may bring about our purification, our repentance, our willingness to go forth and bear witness that Christ truly is the Lamb of God.